Why is it that we are so adamant that there is nothing that we need apart from God's word? Why is it that we're so committed to the fact that it is found here in the pages of scripture, everything we need for life and godliness? Why is it that we look nowhere else? Well, Psalm 19 is perhaps uh, the best place, if not one of the best places to reframe that in our minds. It is a psalm, it is a celebration of the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture and really the product, the effect of it in our lives. I might start with a story about when I was a young man, a college student working in the Columbia River Gorge in the Northwest United States. It's the largest river in the Northwest, one of the largest in all of the states. And it runs between the Cascade Mountains, coming down through that gorge with a constant gust of wind at about 40 miles per hour. It's a a great windsurfing spot, but it's also just an unimaginably beautiful area of the country. And there was a spot I used to ride my bike down to on a little grassy knoll that sit, uh, sat on a ledge over the Columbia River. And I remember one particular night going out and, and sitting in that grass and just, just taking in the rushing uh, of the river in front of me. It's nearly a mile wide at that point. Some 265,000 gallons of water flowing past you every second. And you gaze upon that river and you lift your eyes and right beside it are the, the rising mountains that are all around it. And in that particular night, a crystal clear western sky with all the stars twinkling and the moon shining down and everything was just, just blazing with the light of the night sky all around you. It was glorious. And I remember that particular night, I was really moved. I was moved to, to tears, which doesn't happen often for me, unfortunately. But that particular night, I was really overcome as I just thought and I just pondered the massive power that was on display before my eyes. I, mean, I thought about the inability of mankind to reproduce what was all around me, to make such majestic mountains which stood for so many thousands of years and to uh, to rush that much water move that volume that uh, that quickly for that consistently of, of time over and over day after day month after month year after year hundreds of thousands of gallons per second rushing past you at who knows uh, how fast and then as I as I took all of that in and I, I looked at the mountains and my eyes were then taken up to the starry skies above me and I just noticed all the glistening stars and the beautiful moon and I was just overwhelmed by, by the pure power of it and the inability of, of man to really accomplish anything like that. Well, David sort of takes us to that scene in the opening verses of Psalm 19, he is demonstrating for us an equal sense of awe and wonder at the created world around them. He cries out as he considers the heavens and the skies and the glories of all of God's handiwork. But he doesn't stop there because as he lays that out at the opening of the psalm, he will move on to speak about something equally, if not more glorious, which is the word of God. And with this psalm, he's spelling out to us the classic 
categories of divine revelation. He's addressing the ways that God reveals himself in these two broad and sweeping arenas. The two ways that we come to know God, and they're both addressed in this psalm. He reveals himself, that is, God reveals himself, first of all, in creation, but then he also reveals himself in Scripture. He he speaks, sometimes we would say, in the world, but also in the Word. Or as theologians would say, he makes himself known by general revelation, that is in nature, and also by special revelation, that is in Scripture. Now, these aren't just the random thoughts of some passing theologian, though. And they're not just the musings of some idle poet. David is very intentional in setting up a parallel here. He has a message to proclaim. He's drawing an analogy between these two. And he wants us to understand a certain comparison of sorts. Because while there are some very distinct differences in these forms of divine revelation, there are some very real correlations, very real parallels, which have an impact even on our own lives. We can understand something of the way that God reveals himself in Scripture by the analogy of the way that he reveals himself in nature. And that's not even the total picture because the analogy David will extend at the very end of the psalm beyond nature and beyond Scripture, even into his own life. He can't look at the glories of all that God has made known of himself in nature and Scripture without considering the implications for his own personal existence. Now, obviously, before you can ever get to that conclusion that David forms at the end, you've got to understand his observations, which, as I said, begin with nature and begin with Scripture and the total picture he's laying out for, here, for us here, ultimately describing for us God's design to make his glory known throughout all the world. He's directing our minds to understand God's design to make his glory known specifically in these three arenas. He begins, first of all, by talking to us about God's design to make his glory known in nature. He says in verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In him, excuse me, in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So he begins with this brief and powerful description of God's revelation of himself in nature. And we can't spend too much time here, but we can basically highlight four factors that David is pointing out to us about this this natural revelation. First of all, he tells us it is specific. It is specific. The heavens declare, he says, the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, it's pointing to something. It's pointing in a specific direction. All the evidence that is necessary draw attention to its maker. 
And it's constantly proclaiming and declaring and announcing and confirming truth about God's glory. Now to say it declares God's glory is simply to say that it puts on display his attributes. That's what God's glory is. Some people say it's the sum of his attributes. It is It is his character. And so creation is a constant testimony to the attributes, to the character, to the glory of God. Or we might say that creation demonstrates God's wisdom. The creation demonstrates God's beauty. It demonstrates his power. It demonstrates his immensity. It demonstrates his omnipresence. It demonstrates his omniscience. It demonstrates his majesty. We can say it displays all of these attributes of God. Romans 1, as a matter of fact, says this explicitly. God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. This is what, this is what natural revelation does. It points specifically to God's attributes. And it's always doing that for the attentive mind. It's always causing us to reflect on the power and the beauty and the wisdom that is behind all that we see around us. For some, the skies and the stars are just simply some light to to illuminate their activity and their entertainment or whatever it might be. But for the sensitive, these wonders are overwhelming. They're overwhelming and they captivate the mind. Not just that, though. Not only saying that they're specific, but he's saying they are incessant. He says, day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So the language here is emphasizing the continuous, unceasing nature of this message. It is a steady stream of knowledge, he says. No matter where you look, no matter when you look, no matter where you are, he says God has designed it that way. He's designed creation so that on a macro scale or on a micro scale, his glory is seen, whether it's in the day Uh, David says, or in the night, whether it's in the depths of the sea or the very depths of space, whether it is inside the body or whether it's above the earth, whether it's something you're trying to harness for energy or something you're trying to capture for beauty, it is all there declaring the glory of God all the time. It is a constant stream of data that is meant to captivate the senses and drive man to look deeper and deeper, and farther, and farther. And the implication is, he will never, mankind will never exhaust the wonders of creation. It is incessant, he says, intended to reveal God's character. But, despite being the fact that it's so specific, and despite being the fact that it's incessant, David tells us in the next verse, it's inaudible. It's glorious, it's, uh, it's, it's specific and incessant, but it's also inaudible. That is to say, that despite the fact that David speaks about it as language and speaks about it as having a voice and all that, he clarifies in verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
So he's acknowledging that in everything he's characterizing here, there is no specific language or words that are ever communicated. This is one of the limitations of natural revelation or general revelation. It's one of the limitations of learning about God in nature. There are, there are not any clear statement. There are no words. There's no voice. There's no speech. And so while natural revelation is obvious to all, it isn't sufficient to explain to them everything they need to know about itself or about God. Natural revelation, in other words, is still subject to interpretation. And without specific words, without specific statements, those interpretations are often wrong. And so there's an insufficiency of God's revelation in nature because it's inaudible. It may inspire. It may captivate. It may strike man with a sense of awe. But with no words, he will always be left with questions. In fact, for some people, that's what natural revelation does. It generates more questions than it does answers. They look at the world and all they come up with is more and more questions. And for many people, this sense of wonder and awe is confusing because they see the glory of the mountains, but they set it in contrast of the destructive forces of earthquakes or volcanoes, or they they understand the, the, the pleasantness of a gentle breeze, but they frame it in the context of the fury of a typhoon or a hurricane, or they understand the beauty of the human body, but they see it racked with disease and viruses, and they're, see, they're seeing all these, these, these things which are outside of their scope of ability and power, and yet they can't put it all together. It doesn't make sense to them, and they're frightened in some places as they are struck with awe in others. They can't tie it all together as they try to make their conclusions. Even in the realm of behavioral science, you take it out of the realm of natural science and you take it to the realm of behavioral science, people observe the the mystery and the wonder of human behavior and relationships. They study things like romance and the love of a parent for the child or the relationship of a child to a parent and and our habits and all those things and they can see and be amazed at the complexities of it all and still not make sense of it. Howard Eirich says this, he says, sociology and psychology may observe and catalog human behaviors, but they cannot tell us the workings or conditions of the human heart. When they try to explain the why of human behavior, their guess is no better than the untrained or the unlearned because they are, in the final analysis, simply making observations based on general revelation. At times, they are very complex and creative. It is to say, however, that they are limited because they lack the knowledge of what is behind creation and the meaning of life. This is the limitation of of natural revelation, it's inaudible. And you see these patterns and you see these things and you're mystified by all of the complexities of it, but if there's no words, there's no explanation, you're still left at a distance to to explain it all. Well, finally, David tells us that God's revelation of Himself in nature is also universal. That's what he says in verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And he's emphasizing this this message 
which in creation is inaudible, is still reaching every part of creation, all the world, the end of the world, he says in verse 4. Or he says there, he begins to use the example of the sun. He says, in them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man or a champion runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So just in this one example, he says that creation and its glories has a universal reach. Every part of creation at some point comes under the blaze of the sun. Nothing, he says, is hidden from its heat. Now, all this is not just beautiful poetry, and it isn't just inspired musings about the wonders of creation. David's intent isn't just to celebrate the sun or the skies. What he's doing is he's setting a framework of totality of comprehensiveness regarding the voice of nature, the revelations of God there. It is extensive, it is universal, it is incessant, it is ongoing, it's always there and it's everywhere. But what he's doing in saying all that is just simply setting up an analogy, a parallel so that we can understand what he's about to tell us about Scripture. Because just like the revelation of God in nature is extensive and universal and and incessant, the revelation of God in Scripture is equally extensive, equally as extensive and, and universal and incessant and glorious. But of course, like natural revelation... It's not inaudible. It is explicit. It is incredibly plain, discernible, clear regarding God. And that's the point David wants to make beginning in verse 7. Is he moves to talk not only about God's glory in nature, but also God's glory in Scripture, his design for his glory in Scripture. And moving from the sort of these sweeping statements about the grandeur of Revelation, he moves in very staccato fashion now to these brief and quick statements, firing off statements about the nature and the characteristics of Scripture. And he uses in each one of these clauses, each one of these phrases, he uses a different uh, phrase, a different description about Scripture and couples it together with a different effect of Scripture, six of them in total, but the upshot of it all isn't the various parts themselves, but it's the comprehensiveness of it. In other words, all the things he's giving aren't uh, just simply individualistic. He's driving home the totality. He's driving home the exhaustive nature of Scripture, the completeness, if you will, of its impact in our lives. And so he tells us, first of all, of Scripture's sufficiency, of its sufficiency. The law of the Lord is perfect. He uses the word law here, which is sort of the broadest word that you'll find in the Old Testament for Scripture, the Word of God, the Torah, as it's sometimes said. And and he's talking about all of Scripture here, but he's 
He's designating it, first of all, here as the law, and he says it is perfect. It is tamim is the word. It's often used to speak of sacrifices that are intended to be offered to God when it says that they're to have no blemish. They're not to have any defect. They're not to have any flaw. They're not to have any shortcoming. That's what this word's all about. And so David is opening up his praise about the word of God by telling us it has no shortcoming. It has no incompleteness. It is comprehensive. It is whole. Those are other words you could translate this with. And so because of this, it's able to bring about conversion. That's really maybe the best translation for the word here for reviving, shuv. Shub, I should say, is the word. It's a basic word in the Old Testament for turning or repenting, turning away from that which is corrupt and turning to God, turning away from sin and turning to God. And so whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, this is always presented as the most fundamental, the most essential need of mankind. This is at the core of what he needs more than anything. He doesn't need his bank account to be filled. He doesn't need his his next promotion. He doesn't need his anxieties to be soothed. He doesn't need his home to be happy or his marriage to be fulfilling more than what he needs in this verse. Because what he needs above everything else is to be turned to God. To be reconciled to God. To return to him. And so David is telling us that Scripture meets the most basic need of man to turn him, to revive him. Scripture is a means, in other words, we might say, by which people are changed. It's the means by which people are changed. See, everything else is just masking problems. It's just taking The symptoms of your life and putting a band-aid on it. Masking and dulling the effects with antidepressants and temporal distractions. But what scripture can do, which nothing else can do, can transform you. Can totally transform you. And in that, it is unsurpassed. It is flawless. It is ideal. That's what he's saying here. Saying what the rest of the scripture says about itself. James 1. Of God's own will, he brings us forth by the word of truth. He causes us to be born again. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because the world through its own wisdom could not come to know God. That is, it could not be turned back to God. It could not be changed inside. It couldn't be reconciled to God. Because the world, through its own wisdom, could not come to know God. It pleases God through the foolishness of the word preached to bring us to belief. This is God's means of changing people. 
This is why whenever we sit down to, to prepare a lesson and, and preach a, a, a sermon or whatever it might be, this is why when we sit down in front of someone who has a problem in their life or wants to progress in their sanctification, this is why we don't look anywhere else. This is why we commit ourselves to finding the answers for life and for godliness in the Word of God, because it alone has the power to change people. Peter sets it in contrast to the wisdom and glory of mankind when he says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It's the thing that causes you to be born again, he says. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. So he's saying, look, you can stack up all the wisdom and insight and glory and pomp of mankind. And what you're going to find is it fades. But God's word stands forever and it brings about newness of life. This is why Charles Spurgeon said the great means of conversion of sinners is the word of God. The more closely we keep to it in our ministry, the more likely we are to be successful. That's what we do. We cling to it. We hold to it. So David is telling us here in Psalm 19, God's word is the perfect instrument to do that. The ideal instrument sufficient to restore through salvation even the most broken life. And by the way, these aren't the words of some armchair theologian. This is a guy that was pretty broken. This is a guy who, he he knew what it was was to make mistakes. He knew what it was to wreck his home, and his family, and his life, and even his nation. And yet he can stand and say that God's word is able to change us. Not only that, Scripture is not only sufficient, but David also tells us it's certain. That's what he says in the second half of verse 7. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He uses testimony here as another synonym of, uh, for God's word. It basically is the witness to God's character, to God's will. Uh, so that's why it's sometimes called the testimony. And he's telling us that this testimony, this word, is sure, it is reliable. Aman is the word. It's a word for trustworthiness, something that is worthy of our confidence. And one of its derivatives, one of my favorite derivatives of this word, is it's used to speak of the arms of a nursing mother. This is the reliable, this is the trustworthy place. And I I can attest to that. I mean, when someone hands me their little one week old, I'm sort of shaking and I kind of don't know which, you know, all the parts you got to support and you're afraid you're going to do something bad and you just hand it back to the mom and it just seems so natural. And you think, wow, how does she do that? Right? I mean, that just doesn't doesn't ever quite feel as safe as when, when mom's holding. That's a beautiful, beautiful image. Put yourself into the arms of God's word. You'll never find a more secure place. You'll never find a more certain place. What David is telling us about Scripture is it's trustworthy. You can put it to test in the various situations of life, and you will find time and time and time again, it will not fail you. David says these testimonies, this word of God, is sure to the point that it can take someone who is simple 
and make them wise. And you couldn't have two dramatic, uh, uh, more dramatic contrast here. The word simple is basically a word for opening something. And it speaks about the person whose mind is a constant open door. I mean, they don't have any capacity, it seems, to shut themselves off from any kind of enticement or any kind of impurity or any kind of falsehood. They have absolutely no discernment to what is right and wrong. They are open to nearly every suggestion. They are the simple. And so what David is telling us is that Scripture has the ability to take that kind of a person and make them wise. Now, you have to understand what wise is. Wise wise is a word in the Old Testament that basically refers to someone who's skillful at living. It's like a skillful person. In fact, it's used, the word is used to describe someone who's skillful at metallurgy or skillful at making clothing like all the garments of the priest or someone who's skillful at playing instruments. And it's used in all those ways. And so when it's used regarding Scripture, it's talking about someone who's skillful in life. They just, they operate with incredible skill. And we, we can all kind of recognize when we're around someone who really knows their craft, they really know their trade, it's, it's amazing just to sit and watch them perform what they do, right? And that's kind of the image that he's giving us here. This is the idea of this person. We're just amazed at their ability to navigate and, and their skill to go through life. And the idea, what David is telling us here, is it's not necessarily about being the most intelligent person in the world. Your IQ doesn't have to be off the charts. Charisma, intelligence, natural ability. But if you are faithful to submit to and apply Scripture in your life, what you'll find is you'll make the right choices time and time again. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. See, this is the certainty of the word of God. Just submit yourself to it. And you're going to come across as a skillful person. Someone who knows how to navigate all the intricacies of life. Not only that, David says in verse 8, It's stable. Scripture, he says, is right. And it rejoices the heart. And he uses here another synonym, the the precepts or the statutes of of the word of God. Basically talking about, it's a word that basically means something that's over. And so it kind of has the idea of the overarching principles. Or from a philosophical standpoint, we would even say the first principles, the fundamental principles that arise to us out of the word of God. And what he's saying is that if you follow these things, what you're going to find is that they're right. And that's not right as opposed to wrong. It's right In the sense of making something level and straight and stable. This is the way the word is used throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of making something smooth or flat or straight. 
Isaiah chapter 26, it says the path of the righteous is level. You make a level way for the righteous. Or sometimes it's set in contrast to that which is crooked. And so you have the idea that the word of God makes your pathway where you will not stumble. There's a, there's a levelness to where you're going. There's a straightness to your pathway. The truths of scripture, in other words, lay out a proper path to the difficult maze of life. You know, some people find themselves in life that way. They started down a pathway, they took a turn, they thought it was going to lead to satisfaction and joy, and here they find themselves at another dead end. Here they find themselves at another difficulty. Their path isn't straight, they've turned the wrong way. We would say in colloquial terms that the scripture will not send you on a wild goose chase. It will point you. In the right direction. And because of that. He says it brings joy. The opposite of frustration. The opposite of disappointment. The opposite of constantly tripping over yourself. He says this is what scripture does. It produces what we might call. In modern terms. Fulfillment. Deep fulfillment in life. Because of the righteousness. The rightness we would say. Of your life. Or we could say it another way. The word of God isn't some source of shallow, superficial, emotional thrills. But instead, what it brings is a chart, a a pathway charted for you for lasting joy. This is what David says. Fourthly, he tells us the word of God is secure. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here he talks about commandment, another synonym for the word, just talking about its authoritative nature, that if you submit to it, he says, it is pure. It's actually a word for clear or lucid. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament for buffing something or polishing something like they would polish a piece of metal in order to be able to see their reflection in it. It's talking about making something clear, no longer cloudy, so that you can see lucidly. There's no more mystifying, confusing, puzzling way. And people do that. They find themselves at a point of life and they're puzzled. They don't know what to do now. They've gotten themselves in a pickle and they're all mystified about what to do next. And he says, God's word won't do that. David's suggesting that all of this sort of stands in contrast to the conflicting systems and confusing signals of the world. Those who... Paul says, are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Someone who always has a new idea for your life, a new suggestion, and yet you follow it and you once again find yourself lost. He says the result of God's word is light. It enlightens your eyes. See the way. You're able to have a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. That's, you know, it's sort of natural for us whenever we go on a pathway that's not well lit, what do we do? We slow down. We slow down, we creep along because we can't see where we're going. I remember one time we were driving from San Francisco Bay Area down to Los Angeles. We had gone up there to visit some friends. Sunday morning we stayed for church, decided to stay for lunch, finally got on the road early in the afternoon, thought we would take the Pacific Coast Highway. See, the beauties of all of the coast of 
California. We didn't realize it would take us about three hours to get around the bay past, uh, I think it's uh, Marina del Rey. I can't remember all the names of the places up there to go all the way around and finally get on the scenic highway there, Pacific Coast Highway, about six or seven o'clock at night. So not only did we not get to see any part of the coast, but Pacific Coast Highway is incredibly windy. And, and what, instead of taking the five-hour trek along the interstate, we decided to take the long route upon Pacific Coast Highway. And not only that, now it's dark. And if you're on Pacific Coast Highway at night, it is very dark. There are no street lights. There was no moonlight. And so what we did is we had to creep along all those twists and turns, a thousand feet, I should say, hundreds of feet, or a thousand feet above a cliff down to the Pacific Ocean. But this is what we do when we find ourselves in a dark pathway, right? We don't feel secure anymore. We feel anxious. We feel threatened. We feel, we feel endangered. What he's saying is, God's word lightens up your path. It gives you security so you know the next step. You can take the next step with confidence. It provides this. Unlike all the wisdom of the world, clarity, light, lucidness. So that we can say trusting in God's word takes out many, most of the confusions of life. Removes so many of the complications. And gives you the sense, the sense of security like a well-lit path. Fifth, David's, David says God's word is unchanging. The fear of the Lord is is clean, enduring forever. Here he uses the fear of the Lord as a synonym. It's uh, common in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of instruction, the beginning of wisdom. Those who practice it, the psalmist says in Psalm 111, have a good understanding. So the fear of the Lord, in other words, is really a synonym for the word of God in the sense that it is the culmination. We might say God's word is the manual on worship for him. It's a manual on how we're to revere and worship God. And so this is, why, this is why David uses it here. It's another form for God's word. And what he says here about the teachings of the word of God is that they are timeless. They're unchanging. They're forever. Forever applicable. Forever relevant. They aren't transient. They aren't changing. They don't come and go with the fashions and variations of time. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, may pass away, but my words will not pass away. You're never having to reinvent them. That's why, that's why we always associate, you know, the old saying in, in theology is old is gold. Listen, if you ever want to make me happy, one of the best things you can ever do is give me an old theology book. I mean, there's just almost nothing better that you could ever give to me. Give me an old book. We kind of hold on to those as special treasures, and they're, they're almost boastful things. Yeah, I've got this old theology book and this guy that wrote about God's Word way back when, and it's just a treasure because God's truth never wears out. When's the last time you met somebody who said, Hey, I've got an 80-year-old psychology book. <laughs> they don't say that, right? We're like, what are you doing with that thing? Burn it. See, this is the nature of God's word. It doesn't grow old. It never wears out. 
Unlike the ideas and the opinions and the philosophies and the psychologies and the sociologies of man. They're always reinventing themselves. So he says you can build your life on it. It's unalterable. It doesn't change. And that sort of goes with the final. David says final scripture is the standard. In a sense he says verse end of verse 9. The rules or the judgments of the Lord are true. And righteous. Altogether. Here the word is basically. The word for rule. The word for judgment. Mishpat. It's the final uh, rendering. But he says that these. These judgments of God, these declarations, we might say, of God, are true. They are, that's the word for stability or firmness. And he combines it with another word, tzedek, the word righteous, which has at, at the heart of it the word for hard. In fact, it was used of weights and measures. Something that was hard, you couldn't peel it or 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 mold it or pull part of it off. And so these were the standards. These were the ways that you would weigh things. So what he says, that's what God's word does for us. Every suggestion, every opinion, every idea, every pathway ought to be weighed against the word of God. In that sense, it's the standard. It's the filter. It's not as if we close our minds to everything going on around us in the world, it's just that we filter every bit of it through the Word of God. It's the standard. Scripture is the, the thing by which everything else is judged, the measuring stick by which everything is evaluated, every philosophy, every teaching, every principle, every truism, not to mention every act, every choice, every pathway. Now, when you understand that everything David's saying here, and you understand what he says in verse 10, that this word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. He's saying, look, there's nothing, the most precious, the most precious commodities and the most sweet experiences of life are not to be treasured above the Word of God because of its nature. Nothing in your life, no matter who you are, ought to be put ahead of seeking to know and understand God's truth and God's wisdom. No treasure, no money, no worldly recognition, no fame, no advancement, no wisdom, no insight, no analysis, no education, no evaluation, no study. Nothing. He says God's word ought to be desired more than all of them. In that way, we begin to understand the parallel that he's making for us, the analogy. Because he's told us that God reveals himself in nature in sort of a universal way. No part of creation is outside the touch of the voice of nature. And what he's telling us here, there's no part of life that's outside the scope of God's word. 
it applies to all men in all situations and in all circumstances. Just like back in verse 4, the voice of nature goes out to the ends of the earth. Scripture speaks to all the issues of life. Perfectly. Completely. So that Peter can say that we have all things we need for life and godliness by the promises, the word of God. Well, that leads David to his final thought, his final consideration, which is God's design for his glory in us. God's design for his glory in people. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? I mean, he suddenly feels an insufficiency to his own perception and his own insight. There's a fundamental limitation to his intuition and his concept and his thinking. He understands he doesn't have the comprehensiveness of God's mind. He doesn't have the eternal uh, uh, perspective. He doesn't have the omniscience. He doesn't have the omnipresence. He can't be all places at all times in all situations. There's no way that he could discern and anticipate everything, every error that he could make. This is the fundamental flaw of human thinking. They can't see everything. And so what are they doing? They're always prescribing something that always has to be accounted for because there are unintended consequences. They tell you, take this pill and it's going to take care of your problem. And then before long, they find out that it has side effects and you got to take something else. And then before long, there are other things that you have to do. Or they would say, you know what? The way to control your relationships is you got to set up boundaries in your life in order to protect your heart and your emotion. And then before long, you find those boundaries are tearing apart other relationships. And then you find yourself back in counseling because you've destroyed all your family. And all the time they're prescribing something without thinking far enough down the road because they don't see all of the consequences. David is saying, that's me. I can't discern all that stuff. So just, first of all, declare me innocent of all my foolishness, all my hidden faults. God, be gracious and merciful to me. But also, he says, verse 13, keep your servant also, from presumptuous sins. That might better be translated, if you do a little research on it, presumptuous people. Uh, Brown driver Briggs, well-known lexicon in the Old Testament, says that this really is the most common use in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 43, this same word is translated insolent men. Proverbs 21, verse 24, it's translated as scoffers. And so David understands here that the world is full of people who do not want to submit to the word of God. They mock it. They scoff at it. They put their trust in their own way. They exalt their own intelligence, their own insight. They are what the scripture calls insolent or arrogant men. And so David's praying, let them not have dominion over me. Don't let them become the influences in my life. Don't let me begin to follow after their way. Then I'll be blameless, he says, and innocent of great transgression if I commit myself 
In other words, to your word. This is the gist in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, or excuse me, my rock and my redeemer. Well, now having read the psalm, you understand that when David talks about words, that didn't come out of nowhere. Some people think that that's what happened. David sort of at the end of the psalm, he sort of veered off into some sort of morbid introspection. No, the whole psalm is about words. It's just at the beginning, it was the words of creation. See, they're always singing the right song. They're always declaring the right thing. In fact, it's unceasing and it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere at all times. And this is what David's praying. God, let my life be like that. Conform me by the power and the shaping influence of your word. So that my lips and the meditations of my heart and all my actions and everything I am. Can give forth and radiate forth the glory of God. You'll do that. You'll do that. You'll proclaim. You will declare. You will make a statement by your life. Your voice and your heart and your life will be loosed to proclaiming the glory of God. Just as creation around you. When you bring it under the light of God's word. When you keep. And abide. And trust. And study. And fill your mind with it. Faithfully. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, make that our prayer this morning. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing, be acceptable, and be glorifying to you. Lord, we understand that can't happen because our hearts are so wayward, deceitful, and unfaithful. But Lord, we know that your word is the exact opposite. And so we pray that you would give us the hunger and the desire to fill our hearts with it, cleanse our minds, renew our lives. May we be those who build by your word and live by your word and stand on your word. And may we find in it the stability, the joy, the growth, the wisdom, the skill to live lives that give unceasing praise to you. Be glorified, Lord, by us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.